Welcome to episode 249 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and Edgar Award winner Jordan Harper is joining me to talk about Everybody Knows. It's either his fourth novel, his fifth novel. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Jordan. Now you're making me count on my fingers. It's it's my fourth book, my third novel, my second novel published in America. My career is very confusing uh, for anybody who happens to be a fan of mine because I have books that have only been published in Europe and not here. I also have my first novel, She Rides Shotgun, was published in the UK under a different title, uh, A Lesson in Violence, which... Uh, has confused a lot of people and caused people to buy two copies of the same book, which I'm sorry about. But like, so like mapping out my career can be a little confusing sometimes. Sorry, not sorry. Mm -hmm. So I freely admit that I'm hopelessly behind the curve on talking to you about Everybody Knows, as, uh, as the novel's original pub date was January 10th. Regardless, uh, a deeply dark crime fiction novel about the twisted symbiosis between the entertainment industry and public relations crisis management is irresistible to me. And it's never too late to read a good book. You've done quite a bit of press for Everybody Knows, and that includes NPR and Poison Pen Bookstore, Left Bank Books and Romans, which is a bookstore in Pasadena. But I'm hoping to bring yet another perspective to the discussion because the third partner of the dance between the industry and PR is the press. And I'm the former editor-in-chief of a magazine published by a major market newspaper, which shall remain nameless. And I have the scars from PR uh, battles to show for it. So let's talk about everybody knows, but nobody talks. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm fascinated to see this angle you're going to talk about because I, you know, I wrote this book, uh, first of all, just because I wanted to tell a big epic L.A. crime story in the mode of like a, a Chandler or an Elroy, uh, but said it right now and said it in the world that I've been in for the last 15 years uh, of of the entertainment industry. But I've also worked in I would music journalism is not journalism in a lot of ways, but it's very adjacent to what this is. But I was a music critic for a few years. And so I've kind of been on both sides of this uh, um, of this world. And I just I think the the manipulation of information, the manipulation of news, what we call news, what we don't call news is really one of the most important things that we're talking about. And I just wanted to find a way to, to talk about that while telling a really exciting story. So I hope that's what I did. So before we talk about uh, May Pruitt, who is your central character, uh, and the, she's the crisis management publicity person um, at the center of the story, I want to ask you a philosophical question, and you just touched on it. Uh, does the industry or the beast, as it's called and everybody knows, attract people who are already off kilter, or does the beast twist them? I mean, I, I do think that is one of those instances where the answer is unfortunately uh, both. I think that everybody has something inside them that can be corrupted. And I think that there are a lot of people who would like in a different life to use their skills for good. Uh, and we live in a culture where that is not necessarily rewarded or, or, or even available to people in a lot of cases. So that if you're like an energetic exciting person who likes to be in the mix and you're good at telling stories and you're good at finding you know interesting solutions to problems and doing it quickly 
you know, maybe in other worlds, there's a place where you could find a great job and be doing good at the same time. Now, that isn't to let May off the hook, because, you know, she what she does is is wrong. It's morally wrong. And there's no question about that. I, I you know, people say that, like, this is ambiguous, or, or I write ambiguous stuff. But I think uh, it's very clear that what is going on is bad. The, the question is, is there any alternative uh, in, in this world? And of course there is, but like, it, it, it's so easy to, to see the good alternatives, but we're so locked into the system that, that is all around us all the time, that breaking out of it is, is very difficult. And, um, and I think, uh, you know, one of the main points of the novel, uh, for me is that May is a person who knows she's doing a bad thing and, and feels bad about that. And the fact that she feels bad about it is supposed to, in her mind, absolve her of what she does. And I honestly, I think that is a, a, a position, a moral position that most people in America take in one form or another. You know, yes, the environment is dying and it's terrible and there's microplastics in our blood and there's oceans of plastic. Uh, but I feel really bad about that. So I'm not going to do what's actually required to fix it, which would be a major upheaval of everything we know and of the comfort of our chairs and all that. Uh, and so that's the the position I really wanted to kind of stake out and confront, not just in other people, but also in myself. The book opens at the Chateau Marmont, which is described in the book uh, as the hippest no-tell hotel in the world. And to which I would add, it's the Sunset Strips Monument to Debauchery. Mm-hmm. So before we even meet Hannah Hurd, who's the star whose situation May is tasked with spinning, you tell us a whole lot, I think, just with the description of Hannah's personal assistant, personal assistance being uh, yet another appendage of the beast. So talk about the daily chores of a crisis PR person. Talk about the story. And I, the story is capitalized. Uh, well, right. It's, you know, um, without getting too abstract here, human beings are people who are made up of stories. We are all, our actual identities are stories we tell ourselves. Our imagination of what we think other people are is the story we tell ourselves about that person. Uh, human beings are defined by stories. And, you know, the narratives have such power. And and a big thing about what May does is, is, is take the raw facts of life and create a story around them that doesn't, and this is important, doesn't have to be believed by anyone. It just has to be palatable to everyone. And they might roll their eyes and go, yeah, right. But as long as you say the lie, the lie has power. So the example I think that is thrown off very early in the novel is the idea of somebody who is checked into rehab for quote unquote exhaustion. And there's literally no human being on the face of the planet who hears that. He goes, yes, of course, that actress is exhausted and there is for is going to a drug rehab because that is a thing that you do when you're tired as you check into a drug rehab. Like everybody, like literally everybody who hears that knows it's a lie, but it still works. It still has power. It still allows them to come back and everybody knows it. And again, I just use the phrase because it's true everybody knows uh i really think that to me this is uh, it sounds trite maybe but like the the idea of the emperor's new clothes you know that that ancient story of the emperor's new clothes and the child who points out that that everybody that the emperor is naked i think that's like one of the most important 
like myths uh, to understand what humanity is. I really do. I think that, but the key to understanding it, when people hear that story, they all like to imagine themselves as the child. And you're not the child. You're, you are one you're of the, the emperor. People, or you're one of the people who thinks the emperor is wearing clothes. <laughs> or at least the thing is that they all know he's naked, but they also believe that he's not. Like that, that's a complicated, like ambiguous statement, but it's true is like, there are so many things in life that you both know is a lie and believe fully. And, and so I think that, that people in crisis management take that idea and just use it as a tool as a, or as a weapon. And, um, you know, again, you, you talk about a very obvious example uh, that, you know, you can talk about with, with your knowledge of the news when a PR person puts out a statement from a, from a person. So through a spokesman, Hannah Heard says X. Literally everyone knows Hannah Heard never said that. Hannah Heard might not have even read the statement that came out, but it is quoted in the newspapers as if that it's a meaningful thing. It's literally meaningless. It is literally meaningless because it is, it is not what they said. It's manufactured from somebody else and it is put there merely to shape the story to offer no facts. Like everybody knows that. And that is so many news articles that we read have at least one or two examples of just total emperor's new clothes, you know. Um, and and again, the, the system functions because we're all very comfortable living those lives. So I think that is really, that is the tricky part about what they do is I think the people who just think it's enough to call out the lies are, are missing the point, you know, and that's a big part of the story too. And everybody knows is the idea that in so many books like this and so many conspiracy theory or thrillers, uh, there's this idea that if you just put the truth out there, that's sort of the end of the story. Like we won, we got the truth out. That doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> um, these people are used to the truth coming out and then keep going. It's just another, it's just another chapter in the story to be, twisted and repositioned, I think is the word they like to use. Oh yeah, exactly. And so, but what occurred to me is that sinners like fellow travelers and everyone knows has May following the threads of more than one character behaving badly, sometimes with Chris, sometimes not. And it's amazing how often someone's fall from grace is another person's window of opportunity. And even more amazing how the world's of bold-faced names um, let's just say entertainment and politics, you know, just to say something, mash up mm -hmm. and intertwine. Well, I mean, yeah, we live in, in a in a society right now where the spectacle is of itself power, that like fame is really a weapon. Uh, and, and so the, 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 the intermeshing of those two things is, is, is just natural because, you know, a politician or politics, first of all, operates on the level of spectacle. Um, just like celebrity does now. It's a people tend to less back people whose policies they like so much as they have fandoms, you know, for, for whichever politician. And, and, and they act very much more like sports team fans than they do people who have like, you know, political goals that they're trying to enact. And I think that everything is just kind of getting subsumed um, in, in that spectacle. And so in, in Hollywood, what I've, I've learned is, you know, everybody says it's who you know. Right. That's like, oh, how do you make it in Hollywood? Well, it's who you know. And 
famous people, this again, sounds maybe even banal, but it's just like kind of obvious. Even if a famous person doesn't know you, you know them. It, it's just, it literally is who you know. And famous people know everybody from that perspective of like, um, and so there's just so much power now in, in being recognized and, and being able to use that as a weapon, if that makes sense. I'm not sure if that uh, gets at what you were getting at, but like. It does make sense. And of course I had, uh, was in the middle, uh, I sort of mashed up two questions because I was in the middle of rewriting all my questions again. The craft question I had was when you toggle between May and Chris, the book is told mm. to both perspectives. Do you write, did you write May in its entirety and Chris in its entirety, or did you write May's portion and then Chris's portion and then May's? It's it's a question I often ask of writers who do this because, um, because I'm interested and it's my podcast. Fair enough. No, no, no. That's a good question. I, what I do is, I used to write out of order. I used to write whatever scene I wanted to write and then mash them all together. I don't do that any longer. I, I break it separately until I know their stories intersect. And then I have to kind of break them both at once. And then I, I write all of it at once in order. Uh, and I use, uh, you know, this is the term, I wish there was a better term, but vomit drafts. Like my mm -hmm. early drafts are garbage. They're so bad. All of that I do at once. And then once it starts kind of coming to shape after I've done two or three drafts, I will start doing theme drafts. And so the biggest of the theme drafts would be, okay, now I'm doing the May pass. And then I would just go through and rewrite the May chapters all at once. And then I'll do the Chris pass and I'll do all the Chris chapters at once. And then I'll do more targeted. I do lots of drafts and I tend to, you know, the kind of middle drafts are all the theme drafts and they are, then I would do just a May dialogue pass, which is doing May's dialogue, both in the sections she narrates or are narrated from her POV and then Chris ones, but making sure that her voice is unique and her throughout. And they do the same for Chris. And then, you know, you go through, not every character gets their own pass, but like, you know, all of the major ones will. And then you'll do a minor character pass and you'll just go through and make sure that Hannah Heard and She-Ra and, and, you know, everyone else who's in the book, um, you know, has their own unique personality. So I do try and and, and plan them out. Um, the book I'm writing now uh, has three POV characters and it's it's a much, it's a added layer of difficulty. It really is. And uh, that one, I, I've kind of been bouncing back and forth about wondering if I should not just be writing out, oh, you know, do all of this characters first and then do all this character second. And uh this one's this one's tough. Uh, I think also, you know, I'm currently on strike, the WGA, and I thought this would be a great time to write. And it turns out that being on strike is not a great time to write, that you're actually exhausted from doing 18,000 steps a day. Or I, I, I definitely break it all as a whole and I, I try and 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 weave it together as best I can. I can't I come out of television, you know, and uh, particularly I learned uh how to do mystery stories from six seasons of the mentalist and helping to break 140 something stories. Um, so I'm a big believer in structure. I'm a big believer in planning. You know, I know that's like kind of the classic question, but I don't think you can write novels like this and like without some kind of structure. I think that once you're in, you're doing three POV characters who are interlocking and discovering different aspects of the same story and then they all have to come together and they all have to have different threads that weave together into a rope that will get you to the rest of the through the rest of the novel 
um, you have to plan that out and you have to like really structure it. And, and so I think that's a big part of it. Early in the story, May's mentor is shot and killed in front of the Beverly Hills Hotel. And I read, God, I either read or heard someone say, well, that that's over the top. Well, Ronnie Chasen was shot and killed uh, in Beverly Hills on Whittier um, Drive in 2010. And the police did their best to claim that it was a random act. And the next thing you know, the purported gunman has shot himself. And everybody knows it was more, though, and sort of defies logic. So, uh, you know, there is sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And I thought your fiction did a good job of just sort of that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like that the Ronnie Chasen story, there's a lot of stories and everybody knows that are, are fictionalized, you know, true events and like people are allowed to have whatever reaction they have. But no, it is funny just because that is very much pretty much exactly what happened down to the I can't remember. You're saying the the, the original in the Ryan Chase story, the the assailant killed himself or did the police kill him? Purportedly, he, he shot himself, himself as the police were as the police were approaching him. Yeah, and he was right. and, and he was on a bicycle when yes. he did it. No, it's funny because I do believe like, you know, a lot of people um, in fiction writing workshops, you know, if you ever taken any where somebody will use as the defense, like, well, that's how it really happened. Uh, and if, if it doesn't ring true to somebody, it doesn't ring true to somebody. It doesn't matter if it happened or not. Everybody has their own relationship to a book and they have their own reactions, which, by the way, I mean, this is all like kind of sidestepping what you're, what we're talking about. But like, that's why I don't read bad reviews. Like, I don't go on Goodreads and I... If I do, I filter for five stars and read the compliments because I what what, what do I benefit from hearing? You know, I, I would love to act like it doesn't bother me. But like I read one last week where a guy like knocked a star off the review. I just said I don't read them. And I actually <laughs> I really Everybody don't read knows them that you do. But this is why I don't read them is because I accidentally saw one that was still a fairly positive review. But he was like so angry. He's like, oh, I almost quit after the first 30 pages. Because he used the, he was too cool for school with his jargon, and he caught. He said something was a thirst trap, and I don't know what that means. And and, and I got so irate because it's just like, just Google it. It's not like, it's a, it, it's a term. It's like a modern term. It's I didn't make it up. Um, there are things I did make up, by the way. Uh, black bag PR is completely my. That's my invention. That term um, for describing because crisis management to me is such bloodless corporate speak you know, for what they do. And, and, uh, and black bag PR has a nice little pop to it. So I, 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 I came up with that. Um, and I'm sure Edelman has now adopted it inside their walls. Well, I hope so. You know, a lot of, when I came up with it, I was thinking a lot about um, John le Carre and, and uh, Tinker Taylor soldier spy, where he invented the term mole. Like mm -hmm. as as a you know a, a spy who's inside another spy agency, and now that is literally like the universal intelligence agency language for that character is a mole. And I said, like, man, if I could do that, if I could put my my thumbprint on the language, that would be very very interesting. Um, but yeah, you know, there's uh, so many things in the book are are minor modifications of true stories, and I don't know how many people are going to pick up on how many of them. But I know there's a lot of people inside Hollywood who know who I'm talking about for a lot of it. But even 
you know, early on, May goes to a staff meeting where they just kind of like roll through scandals that they're helping to cover up. And it's everything from, oh, there's a strike happening at a warehouse someplace and we've dug up dirt on the on the strike leader. Um, crisis management people do that all the time. You know, um, stories about CEOs who've done bad things trying to kind of come back in. And is it too early for their you know, expose and and the details quoted in that part are drawn from two different people in the entertainment industry. And there's just, I mean, there's even little stories. There, there are a lot of things in there that either I experienced or I heard about in Hollywood um, and, and folded them in. So the unity of all the stories, it's very hyperbolic. And this is, again, me drawing from Elroy, who... I, I One of the things I love about what Elroy's writing does is he turns everything up to 11 you know everything is louder than loud brighter than bright uh, and you know, faster than and, fast and faster than fast and and every page there is something insane happening where you know if you live in los angeles long enough you will see a lot of crazy things and if you just try and compress that and make it pulpier and louder um it might not describe your average everyday day in LA but it's still it describes the realness of LA to kind of go like no it's it's always happening there's always something there's no craziness that you can't imagine that isn't happening behind somewhere something and so I really do believe in, in like pulp's power to to be more honest than like a realistic per, you know, portrayal because it, it kind of gets to the essence of things. So we've talked a lot about PR and and the way PR manipulates um uh, public perception of just about everything, and, you know, and it's black bag publicity and, and of course, spin doctor, which has been around. Um, and, and I thought what you did really applies to PR peeps. And, you know, personally, I find it exhausting how readily the manipulations are bought. Uh, you, you described it as, you know, that we kind of want to, it's easier, it's easier on our brains, on our psyches, and on our souls. But it made me think about social media, which is a big part of your book, as it's a big part of Hollywood now. And and one, I guess one would have thought that social media in the hands of boldface names might short circuit the access control, which was sort of the Pat Kingsley version of celebrity publicity. Um, but I think perhaps it has strengthened it because the PR, black bag PR, spin doctoring PR has just helped manage this too. So what celebrities are tweeting is just another way of sucking the general public in. It's not them. No, I think it, you know, social media both causes and it is a symptom of like the, the mass epidemic of loneliness in our country right now. And what that kind of social media for celebrities does is it, is it creates what they call it, what is it? It's a parasocial relationship between you and, and the star that you know, it used to be stars for people who were over there and they were kind of mysterious. They were icons. They were two dimensional, but they were gorgeous and lovely and bold and we could project ourselves onto them. But like now they've kind of come down to earth, but they haven't really. It's exactly what you're saying. It's like they're one of us, but it's all controlled. It's all spun. It's all paid for. You know, they're all drinking these tummy teas or they are, you know, getting gift bags from people or eating at restaurants for free and and, and creating this life. 
that you feel like if you follow somebody on social media, you start to feel like you know them in a way that people didn't used to feel about celebrities at all. Uh, but that doesn't make it any more real. You know, it, it's still very false. It's still very controlled. And even when it's not controlled, it still isn't real. You know, like it's still um, you're still seeing something that is is mediated by screens and editing and what they choose to like put up. Like, so I agree, you know, I, again, I like I said, I, I'd done this. The reason I wanted to write Everybody Knows is that I had done a pilot based on Elroy's L.A. Confidential uh, and it hadn't gone to series, but I'd wanted to do this big epic crime story uh, set in L.A. But the thing I wanted to do, having gone through Elroy in the 50s, was I wanted to try and do one of these classic L.A. novels, but set it right now. I think that crime fiction as a genre looks backwards too much. I think that, you know, we look at film noir, we look at the pulps. Um, we look at all these classic writers and we're always kind of staring that direction to the point that a lot of the classic L.A. noir that we think of were period pieces, which Elroy's stuff is period pieces. Chinatown's a period piece. Like we're always looking backwards. And I think that I also hear a lot of people say like, oh, you know, you can't write a thriller with modern technology. You know, everybody has cell phones, so you can't write thrillers. And I was I really wanted to prove that that wasn't true, that that we're not the world isn't that different and LA is in its own way, a fairly eternal city. Like the problems that they had in, in the forties are the same problems they had in the eighties, which are the same problems we have now. LA is real estate and crime and racism and corrupt cops and celebrity and money, 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 um, all poured in at once. And, and how that stuff gets mediated and who controls it is never going to change, or at least not in, in the world we live in now. And we can keep telling these stories and we don't have to always look backwards. From the advent of Hollywood and, and you know, the 20s uh, getting it started all the way through now, it's it's just the same story. And I just think- Right, but I think I agree with you that it's time to, as wonderful as LA Confidential was and as wonderful as, as Chinatown was and as wonderful as all of those sort of retrospective to give it a nice term. Um, nostalgia might be another term. Um, mm -hmm. it, because it's still happening, it should still be written about. And I think one, one of the wonderful things about crime fiction, especially as it, as it expands uh, more into writers of diverse backgrounds, is it's a wonderful way to visit other worlds and other mm -hmm. stories and other people. I mean... Uh, when I, you know, you read Steph Char, you, which is another angle of Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Naomi Hirahara. And, you you know, you learn about that. I, I uh, about the Japanese American experience with the backdrop of a crime fiction story. So I think it's a wonderful way to visit another world and be well, entertained. And I think, you know, to, to seize on, on, on Steph's book, Steph's a good friend of mine, and, and I love that book. Um, even though there are parts of that book, it's both contemporary and a flashback, you know, um, that it's exploring an era when it does go back that we're not making a bunch of movies about. We're not telling a lot of stories about the relationships between Korean Americans and Black uh, Americans in Los Angeles in the 90s. Like, that's a whole different story that we could tell. And I hope that there's more that, you know, I know Steph's trying to turn it into a TV show. I don't know where that's at right now. Um, 
And I, I think that you're right that there are still, you know, with the with like the the very welcome um, addition of more more diverse voices in, in our genre, there are new opportunities to go back and tell a different story besides the guy in the fedora. I mean, obviously, we've had you know we have Devil in the Blue Dress. We have a lot of uh, well, no, we don't have a lot. We have some examples of people doing that, and there's a lot of opportunities for more people to to do that, both globally in crime fiction and specifically in Los Angeles. And even for me personally, if I do go back and do a retro piece, um, I've been talking a lot to people about how much I would like to do an 80s Los Angeles period piece crime fiction story, um, because it hasn't really been done. Um, you know, there were crime fiction stories set in LA in the eighties, but like, I want to go back and look at that. Uh, and in fact, this whole idea came from when I did LA confidential and after it didn't work. And I think one of the reasons it didn't work is that people are frankly tired of the fedoras and and in that era, it's been very well, you know, Elroy broke fresh ground, but that was a long time ago. And we are now as far from the eighties as Elroy was from the forties and fifties when he wrote those books. And if I was doing it again today, even though I think James Elroy would probably come to my house and, and kill me, I would pitch doing LA Confidential as being set in the 80s because I think you could do it. He might. He might. That's the thing with James Elroy. Yeah. He might. He, he, might. he might try. He's he's not as spry as he used to be, but I think he can probably move pretty fast. Well, he's, he's a, still, still, still a tall fella. So, you yeah. know, uh, rangy, yeah. rangy. rangy. But, uh, he could hurt you. Know, it, and, you know, I I understand that. And I think if I had heard before I attempted to adapt LA Confidential, if I had heard somebody else was doing it and setting it in the 80s, I think I would have said, oh, that's a terrible idea. That's sacrilegious, whatever. I'm just saying, having gone through the process, I think to me, it's now more interesting to think about doing it in a different time period. Because one thing we just kept running into when you're doing it is there's part of you that wants to think the 50s were 50 years ago. You know, like there's and and at this point, you're talking about it's 70 years ago and, and you approach, you know, somebody who's young now and you go, hey, I mean, when you were young, you weren't interested in what was happening 70 years ago, you know, like and neither was I like I wasn't a child wondering what was happening in the, you know, what what was the 1910s like? Like that was not interesting to me. And so I just think, you know, even our retro stuff needs to catch up as far as crime fiction goes. But there is one constant in crime fiction, and that is the idea of redemption. So I don't want to introduce any spoilers. And But one of my favorite lines from The Wire uh, came to mind as I finished the book. So I'm not going to talk about, you'll understand why I, I think this and that. And that was Brucey saying to Omar, conscience do cost. Mm. And is conscience, uh, is there, is it, too high a price for someone like me and Chris, or is it priceless in, you know, what is a transactional world? Well, I think that's the crux of it. And I will say that, you know, my characters that I write about, I've never really been somebody who writes about sociopaths. You know, I write a lot of crime fiction, but I never have written about uh, people who I like to write about people who are doing bad things and know they're doing bad things. And wrestling with that, because to me personally, that's the human condition, at least the way I, I live in it is I don't think I'm perfect. I don't like everything that I do uh, and and wrestling with that and wrestling with my place in society and what I think actual goodness would look like in the world that we live in. 
and what that would cost is is a huge question. And, and so I don't actually have an answer because it's literally the crux of the novel for me is my own feeling that working in Hollywood in any capacity is in some way unethical because you're so connected to this, you know, you know, gross vein of power and corruption that even if you yourself are not doing anything, you're at least overlooking something. And I've never been in a situation where I had to like deal with these questions of what would I have done if the star of our show like abused somebody? I've never been in that situation. Um, and I think now that I am in a position of power and uh, relative power, I've been around, I have experience, I can, I can do work and I have more self-confidence. I, I'm fairly confident now that I would do the right thing. Now, when I was starting out, and something happened. I don't know what I would have done. I hope I would have done the right thing, but I can't know that because it's so terrifying when you're just one little person there. And I will tell you this, and if this is too far, uh, you know, I was on set one time on a TV show and the guest actor was gay and our lead, I'm not gonna say what the show was, uh, it was just kind of a homophobic asshole to him. And I, I didn't do nothing. I called my showrunner and said, I think you need to get down here. This is getting really ugly. So I did one little thing, but I stood there in silence while our star was being a jerk, you know, because if I were to step up, I thought, well, I was just terrified. I, you know, I, I was very new in the industry. I, um, I didn't want to upset the apple cart. And I think, again, that is the feeling that everybody has had at some point in their life, I think is, um, that, that feeling of, of not doing anything and feeling awful and thinking, well, that has to be good enough. The fact that I don't feel bad about it has to be good enough. Um, and, and I hope this isn't too much of a jump, but I'll just say on the other side of the spectrum, I did sit down with a crisis manager and talk to them about what they do and the research for this book. And their attitude was very different. At least the the attitude they presented to me was, this is a service. We perform a service. Everybody the, deserves a story. Everybody deserves a story. And, and they compare themselves to defense attorneys. And, you know, I did not say this because I, I was not there to argue with the person where, where it's like, well, the difference being that we provide an attorney to everyone. If you're arrested of a crime, you get an attorney. Not everybody gets a crisis manager, only the wealthy. So the idea that everybody has a right to this is a flat out lie. Um, you know, that this is a purchase product. Anything that is a purchase product is not a privilege. It is, or it's not a, it's not a right. It's a privilege. It is a purchase thing. And so you aren't providing this, like, it's not, again, like there it's are. It's not noble. It's not noble. It's not noble. And, but this person presented no no doubts, no qualms, no squeamishness, nothing. It was, this is what I do. And I think for a lot of people who do truly bad things, that is more common. I don't know how to write about that person's inner life. And maybe that's a failing of mine as an author that I don't know how to get inside that person's head the same way that I know how to get inside somebody like May's head or Chris's head, which again, Chris is a corrupt cop, but at least in the place- Former where, or corrupt he, cop. Former corrupt cop. Um, and at least at the place he is at, when we meet him, he is aware of that and has some feeling of, of guilt about it. Now, I believe the Chris, when he was a cop before he, uh, you know, had his fall from grace, 
I don't believe he did have those feelings or if he did, he had them shoved down so deep that he couldn't, you know, recognize them on a conscious level. I think they were there unconsciously. And that that's hinted at when you hear his story that clearly he was swallowing a lot, but I think he didn't know he was swallowing it. And maybe that's the truth of this person I'm talking about is that they, they are just better at repression than somebody like may is that, that they've got the, the, the cellar door, the padlock on the cellar door is a little bit stronger um but uh, you know all of this is circling around because uh, i'm not answering your question of like what's the cost of conscious because i don't know i i think that's and that's to me is where interesting art happens is when you're driving towards a point where you don't know the answer because i don't want to be didactic i don't want to preach at anybody i'm i try and be a good person but that doesn't mean that i am i again i i have tremendous guilt about living in the society we live in and being you know successful and being able to own a home in los angeles and and doing it by standing at the side of a set while somebody is being an asshole to a to a man and and not doing anything about it. So I don't I don't present myself as a moral arbiter and and I present I do think there are things that are clearly obviously awful and everybody knows delves into those things where there is no ambiguity of like no that's that's, that's awful wrong. that's evil that's wrong. But I think the thing that I'm interested in is our connection to those things and the fact that we, we you know, there's a point near the end of the novel where May kind of does, the, the she wrestles with that thing that I think we all wrestle with of like, we all know that we live on a pile of bones. Like we all know that we're poisoning the ocean. We all know that there are people in sweatshops and in, in, in countries and other continents that are making all the shirts that we wear and then we throw away or, you know, and, or we donate them to Goodwill and we act like that's some kind of like, you know, absolving of what we do. And, and I don't believe that, but I, I, I believe that the amount of courage needed to break out of the system and do what I, in my heart believe needs to be done is so vast that, you know, I, I can't claim that I have it. And so I, I, I know I'm kind of going on here, but this is like, this is really what I wrestle with, with all, all of this stuff is, is dealing with how to do, what to do about the evil in the world while you're trying to deal with like, if not the evil, but at least the badness inside yourself. Well, and that's the meat and potatoes of crime, of good crime fiction is moral ambiguity. Yeah. Yeah. And moral ambiguity from a place of, of, um, of uncertainty. And, and again, like, uh, I don't know, again, it's just not how I write. I don't write about people who I think are very evil. And I don't write about people who are very good because I just don't know. very many. Uh, I don't know how to get in those heads. I know, I know how to get in the heads of people who are somewhat like me. And I mean, I'm, I'm being a little, I can, I can write about a lot of different people. And I think I present a lot of arguments from the point of view of of like people who have no problem with it you know there's uh i changed a lot of names at the last minute uh and everybody knows so sometimes i get the names wrong but there's uh ward parker i believe is the name of the the hollywood that was his name in one draft i hope that's the final draft um but um who is the the, the west hollywood uh politico who who likes to shoot up sex workers with methamphetamine and watch them uh, get off, which leads to people dying. And that's his like little secret. But he also functions in the book as sort of the, uh, the POV of the, the bad person, you know, and, and just somebody who just sees power is power and real politique, you know, and 
the way that some people think that that kind of raw vision of the world is just power exchanges and power relationships is somehow more real than one that involves like emotion and love and, and emotions like that. And I think I did a good job of writing his POV. Um, but I don't know what it would be like to go inside his head quite as much. Maybe I should push that. Maybe that's, I think not the book I'm writing now, but the book afterward, the the third book in this sort of series is going to have a protagonist who is much more on the side of doing wrong and evil. Well, you, you, we've come to what is usually my last question and you sort of set it up. And I think that May and Chris are, are such really wonderful characters that we cannot not revisit them. So um, I won't use the word sequel, but maybe a follow-up to everybody knows. Yeah, I'm writing it right now. It, now, it does not feature Chris and May as the protagonists. I am somebody who I feel like once I've kind of taken a character through their big turn, I'm sort of done with them personally. So I think Chris and May might appear in the next novel. Or I know, at least as written, that May will appear. Right? So maybe, uh, but they're not the protagonists. The, the, I'm working on the follow-up. Uh, the, the title is We Do Violence. And it is set in the same Los Angeles. It's set in the aftermath of everybody knows, but it's the the continuing characters are much more the bad guys than the good guys. So you know they're still going to be blackguard and uh, sort of the the villainous people who who are making things happen. But I'm telling it from three different perspectives of Los Angeles. I'm trying to remove a little bit of the Hollywood from it and just do the bigger Los Angeles. So there's going to be a character who is uh, a night crawler, somebody who, you know, drives out on the city streets and, and films things and either tries to sell them to news agencies. Although nowadays it's more about streaming it online, having subscription services and things like that. And uh, that's one of the characters. There's a, a private concierge who is a, you know, somebody who solves problems for rich people, but they're pleasure problems. They're like who sets up the uh, wild sex parties, uh, who sets up, um, you know, who can make anything happen for people? And and the more I research it, the more I realize that if you have enough money, there really is no experience. Uh, I don't want to spoil it for the novel, but somebody told me how if if you want to kill somebody and not get into any trouble for it, there's a system for that, and and I will explain it in the book. Um, and then the third nobody knows a guy. Yeah, but there's a, there is actually a, a a way to do it that uh, if it's really what you want to do. Um, and, and I mean, I'm being very serious that you will not get into any legal trouble for it. Um, there's, there's a service for that. Um, I'll tell you about it off there. And, um, and, uh, the third character is a defense attorney and it's, I'm going to really kind of go, this novel is going to be crazier and pulpier and darker and I'm just going for it. I've kind of reached a place in my career where I I'm ready to just go for it. And, uh, I hope people like it. I hope people buy it, but. I'm just trying to to write the books I'm meant to write. And uh, and then there's going to be a follow-up after that one uh, that will be very much, I think, set in the world of Blackguard and the intersection of our, our military, our police forces, and private security and how massive that is and how little we talk about like the actual violence that regulates our world and that's one of my deep obsessions right now is 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 that so i this is definitely the world that i'm sticking in for at least the next three books i think but um who knows or i'll get another idea um but that's where i'm at i you know i, I think i might have said this off air or not but i've i the book has stalled a little bit 
between I was running a show on Amazon uh, and then now I'm on strike and I thought that I would write during the strike, but it is, um, it's draining in a way that's very fulfilling, but it's also draining. Well, it gives us something to look forward to. And uh, dark is great for fans of crime fiction. <clears throat> dark is definitely the where you want to turn the dial. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. I'm going for it. So, Well, thanks for joining us. And I hope you'll come back. And hopefully the next book, I'll be able to talk to you in a more timely fashion. Oh, no, look, look there's never a wrong time to buy a book. And, you know, the, the paperback's not even out yet. So um, I know there's a lot of people and I don't blame them. Paper or hardbacks are expensive. Like people want to hold out for paperback. I will not get mad at them. So I get it. Well, thanks again, Jordan. Well, thanks for having me. I'll come back anytime. <laughs>